Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor, where we explore the latest advances in cancer research and patient care. Thanks for listening to this episode. Be sure to visit oncdata.com for more content, including expert perspectives from leading oncology thought leaders, FDA approvals, patient advocacy, and much more. And don't forget to subscribe to Oncology Data Advisor on social media to stay up to date on the latest videos, podcasts, and more. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Onc Data Advisor Fellows Forum. We have a very special edition this week, uh, National Cancer Prevention Month. And ironically, we're filming on Mardi Gras, a day in which some folks may or may not participate in activities that are not conducive to cancer development. But at any rate, we're going to go ahead and launch right into the special edition today. Um, and on a more serious note, what we wanted to kind of start off here discussing was some of the worrisome findings we've noted in US-based epidemiologic studies related to cancer burden within the U.S., specifically the rising incidence and prevalence of metastatic colorectal cancer in patients under age 50. We've recently seen some headlines talking about how colorectal cancer is now the leading cause of cancer death in men under 50 and the second leading cause of death in women under age 50, even though these numbers have actually been declining in adults age 65 and older. Now, we do know from uh, risk-based studies that some of the sort of Western lifestyle uh, attributes are contributing to this, such as um, increased red meat consumption, decreased fiber consumption, sedentary lifestyles, and others. But what I was really hoping we could kind of focus on a little bit today as this episode kicks off is what are some of the trends that we're seeing here in clinic, and how are we counseling our patients to prevent um, the worrisome rise in colorectal cancer? Yeah, it, it's a remarkably uh, concerning problem that I, I think everyone's starting to pay more and more attention to over these last four or five years. And I, I know personally, I've, I I recently saw a patient um, on consults in the hospital, or one of my colleagues did rather, um, who was 41 and had metastatic de novo uh, colorectal cancer. So um, it's one of those things that you're you're seeing in the news and 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 kind of the the media at large is is talking about this issue, but you're also seeing it in clinic. Um, and I, I think the big thing all of us are wondering is is what is the the underlying etiology for, for what's driving this, this trend in colorectal cancer. And I, I did want to bring up a really interesting uh, article that I, ju I just recently read. Um, it, it, you know, it, it looks as though this um, rise in colorectal cancer uh, is, could be a, a birth effect. So it's a birth cohort uh, of uh, patients uh, that are coming of age right now. Um, and it makes you wonder if, if there's some type of exposure um, during pregnancy uh, when, when um, these, uh, these, this cohort of patients were, were conceived that that could be leading this. And I also recently, uh, there was a very interesting article about microplastics, um, essentially how we're starting to, to use more and more plastic and plastic consumption, uh, microplastic breakdown in the environment, uh, you know, ends up in our, on our food and, and can cause gut inflammation. Um, so it's, it, it's concerning and, and, you know, no one's really teased this out yet. So it's, it's, hopefully we can, we can get a little bit more of a grasp on what's, what's driving this. Sam brought up some great points, you know, in the evidence he's seen, you know, red meat, processed foods and other things. And I think it's it's could be multifactorial. Like you said, the generational effect, certainly, you know, these patients or even their parents, what they were exposed to. And then how does that carry forward genetically? But I think he hit on a great point with just inflammation in the gut. And I think as a patient myself, you know, I had recently had some GI workups and they were a lot more open to doing colonoscopy earlier. So it seems like some of this awareness is getting 
into fellows like us and other clinicians. But I think also too, the patients I'm seeing, I've got those questions of just like, hey, I'm 50, I've got metastatic colorectal cancer. What does screening look like for my children or for my siblings, even parents? Because they're you said much younger than what we'd anticipate usually that 60 to 70 year old age bracket where we anticipate cancers happening. Yeah, thanks for sharing that point, Joe, about sort of screening. Um, you know, I'm currently finishing my internal medicine residency and I'm actually currently taking care of a patient in his mid-30s uh, inpatient um, who had who, who had Lynch syndrome but never really got got follow-up. And so even for their patients with increased genetic risk, I think there's sort of a lot of potential to uh, really increase the role of screening. Uh, one thing that I found interesting um, is that there may be some warning signs of younger uh, sort of onset colorectal cancer that present differently than patients who are diagnosed above the age of 50. Uh, there was a study published last year that looked at a lot of different insurance claims and looked at a study of over 27,000 patients, 5,000 with early onset colorectal cancer and 22,000 without uh, cancer and, and, and sort of uh, uh, sort of matched sort of by, uh, by age and sex. And what they found was that there were four sort of warning signs that were more common in patients who were diagnosed in, in early onset colorectal cancer below the age of 50. Uh, these were abdominal pain, uh, rectal bleeding, uh, uh, diarrhea, and iron deficiency. And obviously these these four things are, you know, can obviously be due to a lot of other things as well. One interesting thing um, is, that, is that rectal bleeding and abdominal pain were kind of more common among early onset colorectal cancer than among people diagnosed above the age of 50. So there may be some patterns that, that, that we'll be able to tease out as we get more data on, on, this, uh, on this alarming trend. All excellent points, uh, gents. And I think that in terms of kind of the secondary uh, prophylaxis of colorectal cancer, we've heard kind of historically lots of things. Um, we had heard about vitamin D intake, aspirin consumption, lots of fiber, that sort of thing. Maybe the pendulum swinging against some of these things, aspirin in particular, but um, still things that we kind of have to keep in mind in the clinic when we're kind of counseling our patients on how to prevent second primaries and that sort of thing. But I love how two of you brought up the emphasis and importance of primary prevention of um, colorectal cancer. We talked about a few lifestyle things, but, you know, Dr. Kaus, maybe you could kind of kick us off a little bit on talking about the primary preventions for disease in general, um, maybe using colorectal cancer as a case example, for instance. Sure. I mean, primary prevention of many cancers, I think a lot of the focus I've been reviewing with patients recently is diet, exercise, you know, maintaining good physical activity, healthy diets with fiber and vegetables, like we've said before, to help clean through anything carcinogenic that might be in the gut. But I think even beyond that, some of the primary prevention and screening that happens, you know, a lot of the discussions I'll have with patients center around what do we test for? Why are we testing for it? And, and often I'm fortunate enough to have the ability to go into detail with them on the, the pros and cons of screening. So I think there's some perceptions out there where it's as simple as running a blood test and it can tell some a patient has cancer or not. When I think from for us clinicians, we're looking for markers of something that might indicate cancer, but might also mean something else. You know, you think of, I had a patient recently ask me about, well, you know, why why aren't we tracking my CEA level or carcinoembryonic antigen for those in the audience? And it turns out he was a smoker. So you know, we could track it, but it's going to be artificially elevated because of, of lifestyle choices. Uh, another topic I've seen come up in, in conversations with patients is the idea of what we call sensitivity or specificity around tests. You know, how accurate is that test at identifying a positive result or a negative result? Because I think a part of screening and testing that that often goes unnoticed is some of 
what the patients can go through, whether they get a positive test or a negative test. And, and what does that mean? I think in my own institution, recent changes have led to the results of scans or imaging or other lab tests reaching the patients, often at the same time it reaches us. And I think on one side of the coin, that's a good thing. On another side, it can cause some concern if a patient's not quite sure, well, doc, what does the report mean when I read it? It said it's larger. I'm like, well, that could be inflammation from immunotherapy. It could be a number of things. So it's created a wider variety of conversations that I think really need more time to be discussed and some of the nuances around testing and around screening. You raise such a good point about the the day and age that we live in where patients are getting access to results in some situations before we do, um, and then are trying to take those results and, and then interpret them on them, their own. Um, I mean, we could probably have an entire conversation about that alone, but um, the amount of anxiety patients have over or over even some of the indices on a, a, a CBC or complete blood mm-hmm. count panel um, you, you know, they, they call me saying, oh, you know, my, my MCHC was, was 0.1 higher and there's a red exclamation point next to it. You know, what does this mean? And then, you know, it causes a lot of anxiety. Um, and, and it is something we have to be very cognizant of. And I've, I've really tried to start explaining to patients, you know, I, I can, especially with CT scans, you know, as we're starting to restage, you, you know, we, we really just want to wait until we can talk together about the results. Um, but it's, it's challenging. It's, it's a great point you bring up. Much like you said, yeah. the, the, the red color on lab work. That's been another recent trend of where I spent some time last week with a patient where we went through, I think, every category on their lab result. They're like, okay, well, like you said, MHC was red, but this other one was with was within range. So I think even sometimes when there is the reference ranges, there's still a bit of that disconnect of well, what does it mean? What's relevant to each case? Right. Yeah, definitely. And just to sort of pick up on that, I mean, um, you know, I think one challenging thing with screening is always sort of the risk of false positives or the risk of indeterminate finding that that sort of requires more more workup. Uh, we have actually been seeing more studies that are looking at blood-based uh, sort of methods to detect cancer. Um, and even in one study that was published last year, the Pathfinder study, what they found was that in patients who needed uh, sort of confirmatory testing when they had sort of positive um, circular tumor DNA, it took about 74 days for diagnostic resolution, i.e. to either confirm that there was or is not a cancer. So, you know, Joe, to take your patient who is concerned about his CEA levels, he's going to be just as anxious about waiting 10 weeks to see if that blood test actually just means, means nothing or if there's something more scary behind it. Yeah, Dr. Hawk, I mean, I've, I've got to really emphasize this point because we're hearing and talking about these in clinics so often, right? There are these um, not yet approved assays that are looking for early cancers. And of course, you know, palliatively, we're, we're or rather palliatively, I'm excited to discuss these things and, and eventually embrace them into clinical practice, but we're just not ready for prime time yet. You know, um, a lot of folks will end up going for these sorts of pan MRIs of the body, looking for things. And we really should be talking about things in addition to sensitivity and specificity things about positive predictive values, negative predictive values, translating that into lay language. And it's really tough. So obviously we have a lot on the clinician end to do in terms of discussing preventive techniques, but also to talk about tests that look to avoid things before they become problems. So a whole lot of work that needs to be done here. That's for sure. Yeah. Recently I came into today's discussion from seeing a patient with newly diagnosed prostate cancer. And in discussing it with the patient, it brought to mind a, a past patient from several years ago I worked with. A coworker had come to me and said, oh, my gosh, my, my father's PSA is elevated. I was like, okay, well, well, how, how elevated? What are we talking about? She goes, ah, it's, it's, it's PSA is at seven. And he's freaking out. I'm freaking out. Could this be prostate cancer? 
so we get to discussing, you know, some of the factors that could have artificially elevated the PSA. Like, was he taking finasteride or saw palmetto? Had he been sexually active the evening before the PSA was drawn? And then she kind of looked at me joking. was like, okay, so you really want me to go and ask my father all these questions? I was like, if we're trying to get to an answer, like these are some important details. So some of those things did turn out to be true in his case. Fortunately, it wasn't prostate cancer, but you know, the impression and perceptions I've gotten both from being in practice and then from a patient side is there's still a lot of perception that it's just a simple blood test when I think in reality, there's a lot more nuance to what we're looking for and then the results we get. Yeah, I think I think that that's such a good point. And, and there's a lot of conflicting messages that get uh, conveyed to patients and 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 to, to play off all of your points. I, I just met a patient yesterday in clinic who who has uh, metastatic uh, pancreatic cancer and, and is going to enroll in a, a early phase trial and um, really, really hammering me on uh, getting circulating tumor DNA um, to, to kind of track, you know, whether or not the, the therapy is working or not. And we had a very long conversation um, about how, you know, we're going to do restaging scans to assess disease. And, and that's sort of the way the protocol works. Um, but it, it, it raises an important point that, um, you know, these companies are really marketing to these patients to, 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 to come into their office and, and, and ask about circulating tumor DNA, you know, and we, um, uh, to, uh, piggyback off Dr. Karoff's point, um, we're not ready for prime time with that. We're still doing validation studies. We're trying to figure out which patient populations these are appropriate in, um, you know, when we should use them, if we should use them, which assays we use. Um, and, and, and in this simultaneous way, having patients, uh, having these things marketed to them who are very anxious about their disease and, and, and want more information, um, it really creates a, a complex problem, especially when we start talking about screening patients with these platforms in the future, potentially, um, and, and how that could really change things. So it's, it's, um, it's something that I think we're going to have to discuss with patients a lot more in the future. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think there are examples sort of like the show of the patient you're talking about where we have USPSA guidelines that kind of recommend, you know, to or to not, uh, you know, diagnose or screen for cancer. Um, but unfortunately, over 70% of cancers, uh, you know, in this country, uh, or at least cancer deaths are actually outside of the sort of purview of USPSA guidelines. So that's at least where, you know, blood-based screening could be a little bit exciting and, and maybe tilt the balance in the future. For sure. Somewhat related to that point, what I think has been very exciting, at least from the duration of my fellowship and a few years before, is seeing the embrace of chemo prevention, actually, for a lot of common uh, cancers. I kind of think of um, breast and prostate that come to mind mm -hmm. quickly, where we've actually adopted these strategies um, in an earlier setting. I look forward to seeing that in other disease settings and, of course, lots of data being developed at this time. All right. Well, we covered a lot on this uh, session. We went through kind of the realm of primary prevention of kind of any malignancy and then talked about some select areas where secondary prevention could be applied. Um, any last words for our episode today, folks? I would just reiterate one more time that uh, especially as it pertains to colorectal cancer screening, I think it's really, really, really important. And, and um, Dr. Hawk made this uh, uh, point earlier, but, you know, we have warning signs and a lot of people uh, who are younger think to themselves, uh, I'm too young to have cancer. I'm too young to have colon cancer. So, you know, if, if, if anyone hears this podcast, you know, if you're having any of these symptoms and you are, you are young, you should really speak to your physician about this because, um, it, it can be something concerning, um, irregardless of your age now, unfortunately. Absolutely. And I guess um, I'll kind of leave us all with a quote that came, I think, from the 18th century or so. But remember, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Take care, everyone. Have a good week.